I'm Mel Stewart, and you're watching the Swim Swam podcast. Joining me today is a very special guest, a founding member of PDR in Philadelphia, the famed all-black swimming team helmed by Jim Ellis, Coach Jim Ellis. And today we have this team. This, this team was, is immortalized in the film Pride, released by Lionsgate in 2007. Today we have Trevor Breland. How you doing, buddy? How you doing, Mel? Good to see you. bring you on because it's a um you're, you're the man behind the scenes basically you're you're the guy who's telling me everything that i've been doing wrong for years and years and years and it's like, no that's, that's not right this is right so and i have to say this right off the top there i think that there are five people on earth who have an encyclopedia type understanding of the sports in terms of data and they either work at nbc or they're at usa swimming or they're working at swim swam and there's you. And uh, I don't know how you do this. Like, what, what, what's going on with your brain? Uh, well, a couple of things, really, Mel. And uh, you're part too kind. But uh, coming up in the sport in the early 70s, you know, we weren't even, we weren't even 10 years remiss from when you know, pools were desegregated. So when you think about that, it, it's kind of, uh, you know, it, it, it resonates. And uh, if you wanted to be good, you had to study the sport. I mean, we didn't have... Uh, a, a, a plethora of people, contacts in our immediate network uh, that we could, you know, learn from. So Jim Ellis, the coach of Pride, and my, my head coach growing up, and myself, we were, we loved the sport. And uh, we were blessed that we had great people around us that kind of like indoctrinated us into mid-Atlantic swimming and, and helped us get a start when they saw my brother and I kind of taking off. So you had the late George Breen, who uh, helped us at, uh, I, I was able to come work out at Kelly Pool with a bunch of the Vesper Boat Club uh, national level swimmers when I was like 10. You know, it obviously be in the slowest lane because uh, they're all, you know, either in college or getting ready to go to college and they're national qualifiers. But you had that, you had uh, Frank Keith, who's, uh, who befriended us. You had um, uh, Jack Simon, uh, Dick Schulberg. I mean, I've trained, when I was a kid, I trained at all those different places uh, for a little workout Saturdays and Sundays where we go and challenge ourselves um, and swim with them. So. Uh, but we had to we had to study the sport to learn the sport because it wasn't just going to come to us. Well, this uh, this this was a big deal, and 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 Jim was immortalized. He was played by Terrence Howard. You were played by uh, what's his name, Aunt Kevin Phillips, who was Andre, correct? In the film, and I, and I understand that in Hollywood they 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 use composite characters, and and you you made the joke. It's like yes, Mel, that was me. But the I was uh, you said you weren't as cool back then. I'm not cool now. <laughs> You're cool but, now. No, I'm not cool now, but I, I mean, I definitely, I was a little more of a dork, uh, you know, and uh, I was a skinny kid, you know, a little body fat, just lean. I, I can't I imagine that. I can't imagine. How tall are you? Six, five. You're six, five. So I'm, I, so let me, let me just, let me back it up and, and say this. It's a, um, it's not just the film, but it's, this was also um, the New York times weighed in and I, you know, and, and doing some research and looking into, into, into your background. What I loved was that, Jim, it seemed like Jim had the most affection for you. And I, and I liked what he said about you at a young age. It's like as early as eight. And, the, and this really flows with what we were just talking about. You, he, 
he said you were a student and you couldn't get enough. You had to learn as much as you could and you could mm -hmm. just feel his love for you in mm -hmm. that, in that New York times feature. And it's like, and I'm like, that is very consistent with the man that I'm talking to today. And, uh, but I, I loved reading that and it's like, and I'm like, yeah, it does. It makes sense. You, you had to, you had to dive in and know everything. Yes, we did. And, uh, so take me back there when you're eight years old, what was, what were you thinking? Uh, well, I wanted to be a good swimmer. I mean, the uh, parents bought a house, and they bought a house little six or seven, ended up buying the only one in the neighborhood that didn't have a pool. Uh, all the others did. My parents didn't know how to swim, so she wanted to make sure we learned how to swim. That's how we learned how to swim, and that's how we came across uh, Jim Ellis in the Learn to Swim program. Uh, this was in 1971. Again, in 66 and 67, blacks couldn't get in the pool with whites. So you have yeah, to remember Let's get let's let, let's get let's get to this. Let's 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 get to the meat of this. Let's, let's hey, talk about. No, no, I'll, I'll, we my brother became a star instantly. We swam uh, a lot of mini meets to Wilmington Aquatic Club with Bob Matson, Sid Cassidy. Uh, grew up knowing Sid, you know his entire family. So there's a lot of swimming royalty that's around now that knew us growing up because Middle Atlantic has always been one of the greater uh, regions of swimming. Like I, I, one of my childhood friends is Dave Burkoff, man who revolutionized sport with the underwater kicks. He's a very good friend of mine. We swam against each other throughout age group swimming in high school. So we were fortunate to come up in an era where there was a lot of uh, prominent swimming in our era and people that understood our plight and were empathetic to that. Uh, my brother took off. He was an, you know, one of the kids that were winning all uh, the high point trophies uh, as a seven-year-old, eight-year-old, nine-year-old. I was kind of, I was getting there, but I was kind of awkward. I was growing into my body. My brother was born with an eight-pack so, uh, and pecs at age seven. So he was, he was, he was easily gonna, for the 25s and 50s of that age, he was gonna dominate. And we just continued to learn. And then uh, we were lucky enough to have, uh, I remember I was at the pool when uh, John T. Skinner went 49, 44 and 103 at Kelly Pool in 1976. That was in my backyard. That was when he couldn't go to the Olympics because of uh, the uh, boycott of South Africa. I watched him do that in a arena paper suit, one lane line, uh, the pool at the shallow end, because we trained in that pool. It's only about uh, four and a half, five feet deep. No underwaters, and he went 49, 44. Um, I mean, which is still a time that resonates. I mean, until the last couple of years was in the United States and our takeoff and sprinting. But uh, so, you know, was an air, at that time, we had a lot of uh, uh, growth in swimming that was centered around the Mid-Atlantic area. And we were fortunate enough to have people that kind of like brought us through that process. And if you're white in America right now, you're thinking back on everything and you're looking through the lens of Black Lives Matter, you're looking through the lens of the, the murder of George Floyd and everybody's looking inward and they're, and they're really thinking back. And I certainly am hypersensitive and, uh, and looking for change. So when I'm, when I'm researching this period of time, I'm, I'm looking at blacks have heavier, denser bones. They might have heavier, denser skulls. They have, they, they don't have the ankle flexibility. These were, these were myths. This wasn't based on science and it was incorrect. So as your kid, are, are you absorbing this? Are you, is this a part of your reality? Are you thinking, are you thinking that way? Does that affect you? Not really. You just let it roll off your bag. It's something that you can't let uh, resonate too deeply or you'll you just swallow into negativity. Um, so it's something that you heard, but you just dismiss it. Um, we just let it go. Uh, and we never really focused on that. Uh, Jim Ellis taught us to be, to be great and to be great, great swimmers, period. The one thing that pride didn't go into was just absolute level of achievement that we achieved as a predominantly black team to the point where you had people leaving other, you know, white teams, most swimming teams are white, but leaving other teams to come swim with us. 
leaving suburban areas to swim in, you know, an area that's basically like in, in North Philadelphia in, the, in part of the ghetto. Um, you had people that were, you know, lived in much different um, settings, but wanted to come down and swim with us because of the energy that resonated from the team. So no, we didn't think of things like that. And um, he, he pushed us to be great. He dared us to be great and always had us uh, strive to be the best that we could be, period. Um, and uh, the energy, we didn't realize what we were doing at the time. We were just, you know, doing what we were told and sitting back now, as you watch the, the, the events unfold in this country, and then you watch what we actually did back in that time period in swimming, then you kind of really realize what we did and how it uh, has resonated. Uh, I, I remember um, we first set our first national ranking. We were seven, 1979. I was in a, it was four individuals, four African-American boys with a black, an African-American coach. We were ranked eighth in the country in the 200-meter freestyle relay. That is why the relay is in pride. And it's, we went all, all over the East Coast and we never lost. And uh, we, um, that was a goal of ours and we, we, we did it. And when you, when you think about it, I mean, like in the late 60s and early 70s, they didn't, like I said, I've said this many times, but people need to understand, we weren't allowed to get in the pool with you. And 10 years later, I was 12 years old, we we're ranked in the top 10 in the country. So think about that, that's, you know, it, it's different. Um, and, then, and it kept going. And so then I went to college at UVA, uh, next thing you know, we reset and, um, you're getting ahead of yourself. You're getting ahead of yourself. I want, I want, I'm going to get into that. Okay. But I want okay. people to know you're, if you're watching or you're listening out there, this is who you're listening to. Um, and if I get this wrong, you just, you just correct me. I'm, I, my brain might not be as sophisticated. The uh, undergraduate UVA, MBA Duke, managing director, Deutsche Bank. So this is uh, Trevor, somebody who is, uh, you know, when I think about you, I have two thumbnails in my head, two memory images. And, and one is, when you're at uh, the Olympic Games, I think it was 2012, and you're in your in the VIP section supporting swimming, not you know, so as a as a donor to swimming, and in general because you love the sport, and uh, and you, you basically look like a movie star, uh, walking through the sessions. It's like you're, you're tall, six five, good looking, very successful. So I I just see you moving through the crowd and talking to everybody because you know all you know everyone, you know all the the VIPs, you know all the Olympic champions but I have another thumbnail in my head and it's one where I get a lump in my throat and it's that picture. You had to put a picture up and you're like, I'm being stopped. I'm at, a, I'm and you're stopped and the cop lights are, are whirling behind you. And I, can I say what kind of car you have? Um, sure. Okay. Okay. It's Maserati, right? No, it's not Martin. a Mot. What is it? Aston Martin. Vanquish. Aston Martin. I mean, I look in my world. It's like those, so you're an Aston Martin. And I'm like, Oh my God. I'm, I, I, I'm like in this moment, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm panic stricken because I'm like, it was, it was scared me to death, mm -hmm. but uh, that, that's, the world shouldn't be that way. And, uh, but that it's, it's an experience now, but that's how that's that. Those are, those are the two things that I, that I think about when I see you. One is, wow, this is an extraordinary success story. And the other is, wow, your life could be in peril at any second. I mean, true. True. Uh, that, that, that is true, but it's all how you handle it. I mean, yes, I, I remember that post and you commented on it when I was stopped. Uh, uh, I was speeding, wasn't going that much over the speed limit. It was fine. And then the, the guy wanted to search my car without a warrant. I was like, you can, if you have a warrant, you can search my car. If not, then we're not having that discussion. And, you know, just be very articulate, matter of fact. And it usually de escalates the situation. Um, he was asking me to do something illegal, and uh, 
to sold them no. And if you had Warren, good. But just like that, you know, there are there are also great situations. I remember I got pulled over once and, you know, told the guy that look, I was in behind a couple minivans and the one was swerving, so I just punched it to get ahead of them. And uh, you know, I'm sorry if I did that, but I wanted to be safe and get some distance between myself and the other people in traffic. And you know what? The guy came back to me and said, Hey, respect gets respect. You're very respectful. You you asked me what you did, you explained it. So here, I'll let you go. No ticket. So, you know, there's, there's a good story for every bad story. Um, good story. But, Let's, I, and, and I interrupted you. I want to go back to the transition. For, I, want, I want to go back to you. You're, you're going to UVA, and it's a, uh, it, it's a, it's a beautiful story. You, 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 you love UVA. You love Mark Bernardino. I love <laughs> Mark Bernardino. But, but Jim, Jim was the, what, what, the interesting thing. Jim's like, Jim, I'm, you're I'm watching this. Hello. Ah, Jim, Jim knew. <laughs> Jim Ellis knew. Yeah. He's like, this kid's smart. This kid's going to go on to great things. This kid's going to be a, na- a kid, a swimmer of national prominence. And it, you could feel his pride with you getting to UVA. First, first black swimmer at UVA. And you, you, second. huh? Second. second. You, yeah. And you said second before. And I, and I, and I appreciate it. My racial kid that came, that was before me. Um, his name was Scott Meredith. He was very good. I believe he was either runner up. Either he won the 50 and he was second in 100 ACCs. He's pretty good. I think he was on our all ACC 50-year team. He's, he's very good. He's a doctor now. He's you call, doctor call, up the New York, call up the New York Times and tell them they're wrong. Okay. <laughs> you, got you got it right. You got it right. The, uh, but you, you led them to the first, uh, first ACC championship, first of 16, correct? correct. Um, so what, what years were you at UVA? I, I uh, matriculated in 1984, and I graduated in 1988. 1988. So I was at Mercersburg, and we came down, and we would do Glenn Hauk. Were you there with Glenn Hauk? Glenn Hauk was on my team. That's right. We'd come, I think we'd come down and, and, do, and, do a, and do sort of a warm-up practice meet with you guys in September. And uh, do you remember that? Mm-hmm. I remember yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. I was yeah. there. I think you were in the war. I remember you. You probably had, you had to see me. I was the only brother on the deck. I just I did. You know, you know what? Here's the, here's the thing. It's a, uh, yeah, I do remember. I remember all of that, but it's a, um, I just think it's a small world. It's a small, right. small world. What, what's, what was your experience like at UVA? It was great. It was good. I mean, look, it was uh, challenging from an athletic perspective and an academic perspective. I enjoyed my years there. It was very rewarding and it's helped make me who I am today. Uh, Mark Bernardino will always be a close friend of mine, his entire family. I call him my brother. You know, I'm part Italian, he's part black. Um, but uh, it was very rewarding. Um, I have nothing but fond memories, and I'll be the biggest advocate, you know, for the university in any way, shape, or form. Um, uh, I mean, were there situations that are uh, consistent with some of the themes that we're seeing now with the social unrest? Absolutely. I mean, there were, there were times when, uh, you know, N-word was uttered. Uh, there were times when, uh, I remember we won the first championship for UVA in swimming in 87 and in 88, there was an incident where we lost um, uh, to try and try to repeat. Uh, came in second, it was close. And uh, we left and uh, one of the swimmer from another school um, I will remain nameless, but uh, they just decided to say some derogatory things that were laced with uh, racial slurs. And I kept it to myself because I was always taught, you know, as a young black man growing up, you know, you're always going to have to be doing things when situations like that arise. Do not be an aggressor. 
and, and try to de-escalate and just keep moving on. Don't sit there and antagonize that situation and, and engage in, um, especially in the South. So uh, my roommate actually noticed that I was a little bit, you know, dejected on the bus, more so than most because we lost, so we were not happy. And so he got it out of me. And the bus is turned around and we went back in and the entire team confronted that team. Uh, which to me was one of the, most, the proudest moments of being a, an athlete at UVA and being on that team was to see them rally around me when I really did not bring, make a big deal about it at all. And they were just like, you know, you're not talking to our, our teammate right now. So, but uh, other than that, I mean, it was a great institution, great experience, uh, nothing but love for the, 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 uh, the university and uh, the program. We, we talked to Marissa Correa and uh, she talked about a similar Ritzy. experience, huh? Ritzy. Yeah, Ritzy. And uh, she talked about a similar experience that she had a little over a decade, 13, 14 years later. Uh -huh. And uh, from, a, from a teammate who used the N-word in, uh -huh. in a situation. I had a teammate, had a teammate use the N-word with me too, so. Um, and the, hard, the worst thing about it is I had to let, sit there and let this person say that. Um, and I can, I'll still remember to this day how they looked, how they looked at me when they said it. And uh, it, it was not, uh, no, it wasn't it was one of my fond memories, but like I said, I've, I've erased that, but it, I've, erased, I've erased it, but because it wasn't the, the, the you look at the, 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 just the total experience, extremely positive. That's a bad instance, but you know, I'm not gonna let that bad apple spoil my, you know, what happened. But the fact that that happened, it should never happen. No one should, you shouldn't be able to talk to me. And uh, I just, I, I had to, I dealt with it and I didn't want to because there was things I would have rather done, but that probably would have been the most productive. And, and, and if you're listening, that's not a microaggression. That's aggression. That's a, that's a, that's a weaponized word coming yes. from, coming from the white side. Yeah, that's, uh -huh. uh, it, it, it was, it, it, it sort of hits you in your chest to, to, we talked to her and now we're talking to you and you're, and you're, you're we're, it's the same thing. Well, it's just yeah. I mean, when he said it, when he said it, I, I first I was like, wait a minute, did you just say that? Then he said it again. Then he said it again. I was like, okay, all right. I'm, I'm gonna be a bigger person, but uh, you know, it's crazy. It's a, wait, so wait, when you're when you're when you're going to graduate school and you're you're building your career, did you always know this is going to be the career that you're going to have? Um, I, once I got a chance to uh, experience being on Wall Street and what it was like being an investment banking trade for, uh, then yeah, I knew that's what it was for me. But I didn't know at the time. My parents were educators. I grew up in a lower middle class family in Philadelphia. I mean, I didn't want for anything, but I, I didn't know what Wall Street was. I didn't know what what that was, what that entailed. So I would say halfway through my first year at uh, in Fuqua, Fuqua School of Business at Duke University, I, I knew that this is what I wanted to do. And I've been doing it for the last 25 years, same place. Wall Street is, <clears throat> Wall Street is a, it, it, you know, I, I'm, I don't know, I don't know that world, but it feels to me like white uh, country club, upper crust. And um, so I'm wondering, you know, what's that experience like? What's that trajectory like? When, and I know it's, it, everyone knows, the, we all know one thing about Wall Street, that you basically kill yourself in the beginning work-wise. Um, did you have to, to put in those hours and also deal with, any aggression um yes the, the hours are the, what the hours are but it's you know swimming prepares you for that uva being in the school of engineering and applied science prepares you for that especially doing those 
both of those activities concurrently. And uh, then uh, being at the Pupil School of Business prepares you for that. And one thing that I've said to you always, and we've chatted about this, is um, in, in terms of just having discussions around race, uh, you have to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Okay, and one thing my coaches always taught me, whether it was uh, James Ellis or Mark Bernardino, be comfortable being uncomfortable. You got 10 hundreds on the minute and they want you to hold, you know, 56s or 57s, get comfortable with it. It's gonna benefit you, but it's gonna hurt. Okay, so having these discussions, it's the same mentality. Uh, you, you're gonna have to get comfortable understanding that you're gonna to talk to, to somebody about something that might take you out of your comfort zone. And that's where growth happens. So if you're asking me um, if I was prepared for that, I mean, it's kind of interesting. Swimming prepared me for that ultimately. Yes, I swam at PDR. It was a, at the time when I swam, I was an all-black team, black coach, but I'm an all, a lily white sport. I, every time I went to nationals, before I went to UVA, I was the only black person in the meet. I think once before my last year, there was a girl that qualified from our same region and then she ended up coming to UVA, Gaby Bowser, she was a butterflyer. Uh, so one of the other African-American um, swimmers that actually has graced uh, the, the campus at UVA, grounds, excuse me. Um, but uh, working on, on Wall Street, I mean, yes, I have encountered some things, but at the end of the day, I've also had some great sponsors and most of them don't look like me. They look like you, Mel. So that's why I know that we can overcome all this because there are some people that I have worked with, there's several, and that have really guided my career and uh, they don't look like you. I mean, excuse me, they don't look like me, they look like you. And I also do have, obviously, the support of the people that are on Wall Street that look like me. Um, but um, there are very, we're far and few between. And so um, it's, it's like we always, like when we've been having a lot of chats as people, a lot of us ex-swimmers, whether it's uh, Simone, Colin, Ritzy, Giles, Sabir, we've all chatted. And the one thing is when we, when we, when you really sit back and look at this, uh, the oppressor created racism, not, not the oppressed. Okay, we didn't ask for, for that. We didn't start slavery. We didn't start segregation. They did. So to help eradicate it, they've got to help. Okay, and that's the great thing about the, the Black Lives Matter movement and how you see so, the inclusion of so many different people that are not black. Like to me, that is just really moving to see this right now because this, this era in our country, because there are a lot of things that I see that are, are disenchanting and, and kind of like take you back. But there are some things that are really moving and seeing so many people sit around, gather around and say, all right, enough, this needs to stop. That is very, I think, where you're going to see a lot of growth. Um, I did a, a chat with our, the UVA swim team, Todd DeSorbo, who's an excellent coach and now is taking the team, um, is taking the team to the, to, uh, forward for the next several years past the Bernardino era. And um, great guy, I love him. And he reached out to me. Like Trevor, like we want to have the team. We want to talk to the team about what's going on in Black Lives Matter. There's 60 something people on the roster. There's only one African American woman. She's biracial. Okay, and he's reaching out to me to do that, which I thought was amazing because no one had done anything yet. This is right before Black Tuesday, and um, uh, I think the um, the focus of that team and how so many people reached out to me because I'm a I'm a visible alum, so they know who I am. And they reached out to me on social media. They wanted to talk to me, chat with me, Trevor, we want to do more. We want to be anti, like, we want to be anti-racist. I've been, and these are some people that admitted it. They said, like, I've been non-racist, but I want to be anti-racist. I want to help eradicate this. That is amazing because it's not like you're talking about somebody that's playing football at UVA where there's more African-Americans in terms of a percentage of the people they're playing with or, or playing basketball. No, you're talking about swimming. Okay, for swimmers to react like that, I think is amazing. It's amazing. Um, so I think that's, you know, when I look at my experience on Wall Street, uh, yeah, I mean, there's been some times where some things have been, you know, maybe not optimal, but I th there's been some times where they've been great. 
And I think uh, you have to look at life as it will always challenge you. And it's not about um, the challenge, but it's how you react to it and how you accept it and how you move forward. And so I think I've been able to move forward well um, in my career, but that's helped me. Swimming has definitely prepared me. And, and I'm thankful for that. Uh, and when you look at um, uh, what I do on Wall Street, it's funny, I always check, because people, when they see me, they think I'm a football player or a basketball player, still in shape, I'm a big guy, they don't think, they don't think swimming, which is fine. So when they fi- figure it out, they're like, wait a minute, you swam a long time ago, were there that many black people? I'm like, no, there weren't. Were there that many black people swimming? No, there weren't. Okay, so but then look at what I'm doing now. And I often say to some of the people that are my good friends, I say, hey, look, um, what would you do if you were working in this environment and the racial makeup was reversed? So it was a bunch of black guys all over the floor and you were the only white woman or a white man. How would you handle it? And most of them, they, they take a pause and then they look at me and they're, they're not so sure if they could do that, um, which is interesting. Um, but, uh, but no, but like I said, swimming I think has prepared me well and the people that uh, coached me have taught me well and uh, it's, it's been great, um, and no complaints. It's the, uh... I grew up in Western North Carolina. I met, I marinated in a racist environment. No, it just, it did. It's, uh, and I'm naive, shamefully naive. And uh, so when I, when I, I never heard, yeah, you're the one who taught me, Mel, it's, it's non-racist, anti-racist, and you want it, you want to be moving on that scale to anti-racist. You're the one who taught me that. And I, I appreciate that gift. I'm, shamefully one of those guys who said i voted for obama and everything's going to be great and um and you're like no no it's uh you're like no that was that created some blowback um there was a moment when trump was elected and then and then it was the day after he entered the white house my wife and i were with a couple in mexico city and we were in the presidential palace that huge courtyard area and i never thought of myself as being white um, I'm six, almost six two, blue eyed, and I'm walking around, and Trump is just hammering on Mexico, and I'm one white face in a in a sea of brown people, and I freaked out, and I ran, and I said, guys, we got to go, we got to get out of here. I I freaked out, and we got into the car, and we were racing out of there, and she's like, what's wrong? I said, I didn't feel safe, and my wife looked at me, and she goes, for maybe for a split second, you might have just an idea of what it means to be someone of color. I love to. And I, and I, and it was the most uncomfortable feeling. And she's like, now imagine holding that in your body and living that way a lifetime. So that was a, that was a big, that was a big aha. Mm-hmm. But uh, so it's the, the, think about all the, the, the energy that it takes to, to, to live in this space. And now we're in the present day and we're, and we're still seeing it. How do we move on from here? That's what we're that's that's the big thought moving forward. Okay, we're having this conversation now, but how do we keep having this conversation? Like keep having. And uh, when Todd reached out to me and wanted to talk to the UVA team, they just wanted to they wanted to have conversations. They want to learn, and the easiest way to learn is to ask questions. Ask questions in a judgment-free environment. The way you eradicate a lot of this is to get comfortable asking questions, asking real questions. And, and judgment-free environment and, and, and having people express themselves and figure out, you know, what they know, what they don't know, and how do they move forward? You know, um, you know, what's, you know what's funny is, uh, is you, talk to, you talk to white people, you talk to white peers, and, you're, and everyone's like, we're making change. This change has got to stop. It's over. We're done with this. This is ridiculous. They're angry. Everybody's all upset. And, 
But if you talk to, you know, you talk to Maritza, you talk to, you talk to Reese, um, they're like, it's going to take a generation. They're like, nah, they're not. They're just like, yeah, this is good. It's a positive step, but it's going to. So how do you feel from where we're at right now going forward? It's going to take, I agree with them. It's going to take a generation. It's going to be, it's gen, but the generational change is coming. The Black Lives Matter movement shows that. If you would have taken a snapshot, if you, excuse me, if you could have, you could dial the clock back to say when I was at UVA in the 80s and you had a Black Lives Matter march and you looked at the, the, the composition of the people that are in that march, it's going to be significantly different than what it is right now. That in itself has changed in growth, excuse me, growth. And I think, uh, you know, people teaching their children what it is and why, you know, exactly what it is and why they should not be condoning any type of behavior or activity like that is another step. Because, you know, racism is something is taught. It's not, you're not born like that. And so we have to eradicate it by eradicating it from the people that have it Um, and, 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 um, and, and, and showing how you fight against it. Because at the end of the day, like I said earlier, it's a product of the oppressors. Um, and, and we have to, the, the people that have been the oppressors in terms of the, their makeup, as well as the, the oppressed, will work together and to eradicate this from our, our country. There's no place for it. Once you start looking and you're in a top of mind, you start seeing it everywhere, everywhere. We're down to eight minutes. And it's, uh, what I, you're, you're essentially a thought leader in the swimming space. You know everybody. And uh, everyone, has ideas. everyone has ideas about moving forward. Um, and I, I, it's a little bit of time, but I mean, do you have thoughts going forward? Where do we, as a community, what more can we do? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, in terms of a, a community, continue to, first of all, grow, uh, foster, help foster this change and also um, continue to be anti-racist um, and to be vocally that way. Um, I, I, I think uh, I've seen so many, I think the, look, I swam in the 70s and the 80s, big difference um, seeing people now. And, and, and when I swam in the 70s and 80s, for instance, just the, the makeup of the uh, youth in terms of their interests are much much different. When we grew up swimming PDR, we came in, we wanted to listen to hip hop and, and our, our, our vibe in terms of how we socialize. That was us. If you go into a pool deck now, that's everyone, okay? Like black culture has been accepted, widely accepted. And so, you know, the challenge is to have people accept black people as much as they accept black culture. Because if you, you're at a swim meet, I would say 75 to 85% of these teams are playing hip hop. And, and, and associating with black culture. Um, so um, that's one thing. Um, the other is just a, the continued inclusion of people of color in the sport. Um, I think you've seen what that's happened in other sports. And it's funny because the guy that you said, I forget his name, he's, he's not significant given his thoughts, but uh, <laughs> we talked about bone density and, and inflexible ankles. Fucked awesome. Fucked awesome, yeah. yeah. Yes. Well, okay, well. Inflexible ankles are something that will prevent you from being a great tennis player. I think the top five ranked women's tennis players in the United States are all black, including Sloane Stevens, whose mother was Sybil Smith, who swam when I swam. She was a butterflyer. She was one of the first black All-Americans in, in swimming. Okay, But with Venus and Serena Williams, they created a movement and interest in the sport. And now you have to go way down the line in terms of rankings before you get to someone that's not black, which is amazing because not that many black people play tennis. 
And so I think the inclusion, uh, you know, we have a make the make a splash um, effort within U.S. swimming, but we have to really look to broaden how our, our sport because it's only going to make the United States better. Um, there's been when you look at what's been going on, like you know, Simone really set the world on fire, winning an Olympic gold medal in 100 freestyle in 2016. In 1976, a black woman from Holland almost did the same thing, Anith Brigitte. Okay, she got third. She got bronze. The two people that beat her were East Germans. They were cheating. Okay, so she would have won the uh, 1976. The, the Olympic champion would have been a black woman from Holland. Okay, if you got out the drug cheats. So uh, that that just shows you that you know. Think about it. Matt Biondi, one of the icons of sport, uh, his gold medal like. Uh, Assault Olympics was broken up by Anthony Nesta. Uh, uh, and I, I just think that if we were able to get more people swimming, because there's no way Australia should be as good as we are, as close to as good as we are, given the size of the state of California. And why are they able to compete with us when we're such a bigger, in terms of, so, so much bigger in terms of, you know, our population and, and, and where we have people coming from in terms of the diversity of backgrounds. Um, so I think as we do that, as we continue to, to broaden the appeal of swimming, I think it's going to help make us an even better, more dominant nation in the sport. Uh, so, um, but uh, yeah, I, I think it's just being uh, fast, putting our first, uh, putting our being positive and forward thinking in how we address racism, I think will really help us continue to have growth and movement in the sport. I was really, really happy when Todd reached out to me, Todd Sorbo, wanted to talk about it on Black Tuesday. Like, you know, he, he got approval from the AD and, you know, he had this conversation. It was, it was great. It was amazing. Um, and I think uh, the thinking like that, being um, ahead of the game, ahead of the curve, so to speak, just like we've been ahead of the curve in terms of our swimming production as a country, um, will help us uh, grow. We're down to three minutes. And I'm going to drop this because I, I, I didn't want to get past this moment without saying it. We're down to three minutes. But it's, I've seen, I think Simone, I feel like Simone has had to achieve times 10 what everybody else achieves to, to, to really get what she deserves in terms of acknowledgement. And uh, I feel like she gets, it, I feel like people are hypercritical of her and I'm kind of going, I don't know about this. No one's saying, Hey, you're a black swimmer. No one's, no one's, it, just, it feels uncomfortable to me. I, I don't, I don't like it. And uh, we talked about it a little bit, but it's a, it, it's, that's the thing. Do you, it's, are we still in that space where you've got to be 10 times better? Yes. That hasn't changed. That has not changed. And, 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 and Simone is a very good, she's a good friend of mine. Uh, and um, we chat regularly. And it's, it's kind of sad because when you think about it, she's the most consistent sprinter of this uh, uh, quadrennial, this Olympic, the four years uh, from 2016 leading up to 2020. If you go to the major swimming events, so the Olympics, World Championships 2017, World Championships 2019. You always talk about consistency and ability to get the job done. That's how you talk, you kind of describe someone that's a go-to swimmer, somebody that's a money swimmer, someone that gets the job done. She's the only female to be on the podium in the 50 and 100 freestyle in all four, three of those events. 2016 Olympics, 2017 Worlds, 2019 Worlds. No one else. And I, I'd be hard pressed to find someone else that can, has done that in that time frame. We are in every single podium. There's probably one or two, but not many. But they they get a lot more respect than she does. Stanford. I mean, she's constantly revered as the uh, 
constantly revered as an underdog. But but if you sit there and go back and look at that, no other person has done that. So um, yeah, we're down to one minute. We got to say this also. Um, you know, Stanford educated, and if you talk to anybody on the team, she's a leader on the team. Like she, every, everyone follows her. She's a big fan. We're down to one minute. This is way too short. Will you come back on and talk to us again? And because uh, we we don't want to stop. I'll this talk anymore. to you every time I see you, and I'll talk to you whenever you need. We, we chat at every swim meet, and I love our conversations. I love your uh, zest for life and for the sport, and I love the fact that you are uh, you know you're willing to be open minded and have conversations that are difficult. Like you told me, you grew up in a racist era, and, and but yet you want to be a champion of change. I mean, not everyone's going to admit that so readily. And you told me I didn't know. You wanted me to know that. So uh, I, I, I thank you. I, I, I appreciate the friendship I have with you and your wife. Tips are awesome. Um, as are you. And uh, yeah, anytime you want me to talk, I'm here for you. You've been listening to the Swim Swam podcast. Stay tuned for new episodes every week. You can take Swim Swam podcasts on the go by subscribing on your favorite podcast platform. Look for links in the description below and be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more videos as well.